Hey, Jolenta. Yes, Kristen. When I say the words slim for him, what do you think of? Uh, I think of who's him. (laughs) Who is this him you're being slim for? (laughs) I'm going to give you some hints. Uh Thin within, made to crave, the maker's diet, lose it for life. I I don't know. Like, thin within? Is that like some like primal? Like, (laughs) I don't know. Made to crave? It's making me think like caveman, like primal, like, ah. All right. So the big reveal. These are all Christian diet book titles. I I could have listed about a thousand. These are just a few. Oh, okay. Okay. This is making more sense. I see. <laughs> I see. I'm not sure about how the maker's diet fits in, but I'm curious. <laughs> I'm guessing the reason you're dropping these titles left and right is because it's time for another installment of our series, New Year, Same Old BS. Oh, you know it is, and today's installment is all about Christian diet plans. Oh, I can hardly wait. Oh, you don't have to, because I'm Kristen Meinzer. And I'm Jolenta Greenberg. And this is How to Be Fine. In each episode of How to Be Fine, we weigh in on what's happening in the world of happiness, health, and betterment, and we offer a bit of advice to those who want it. And all this month, we're presenting a series that we're calling New Year, Same Old BS. Each week, we are diving into a different fad diet, explaining what the rules are, why it's problematic, where it came from, and why it's historically significant. So, Kristen, what are we getting into today? Well, today's BS diet is Christian diet plans. Ah, yes, religion and weight loss, a winning combination for those who don't have enough guilt in their life. Like, let's (laughs) add shame about your weight to religion, too. (laughs) You know it, indeed. But first and foremost, for our listeners who are not Christian, who are not religious, and who do not think this has anything to do with them, fun fact, the diet industry as we know it would not even exist in the U.S. if not for a Presbyterian minister named Sylvester Graham who kicked things into high gear back in the 1830s when he mixed a heavy dose of diet ideology into his religious theology. Whoa. Hold on. Hold on a minute, because I feel like I've heard that name before. Is this also the religious zealot who invented graham crackers? Oh, yes, it is. <laughs> oh, this all this all tracks. Yeah. Give us a cracker. Tell us to get thin. Yeah, all that. And we'll get to more about Pastor Graham and the Christian diet timeline in a minute. But before that, I want to explain what I mean when I refer to Christian diets, the Christian diet movement, and Christian diet programs for this episode. So first and foremost, what I do not mean is biblical teachings about allowed foods. The fact is the only dietary restriction specified for Christians in the New Testament 
is to, quote, abstain from food sacrifice to idols, from blood, from meat of strangled animals. That's in Acts chapter 15, verse 29. Other than that, there aren't actual dietary guidelines in the New Testament for Christians. Right. Yeah. That's all Old Testament stuff. (laughs) Keeping kosher. That's not for Christian diets. (laughs) And that's not even what we're talking about. Correct. Correct. So what I will be referring to when I refer to Christian diets in this episode Mm -hmm. is a wide range of Christian programs that promote the idea that the human body is a temple that must be kept holy. To this end, gluttony is a sin, and along with it, corpulence. Some notable Mm -hmm. aspects of these diets include, one, the tendency to ascribe overeating to people's spiritual emptiness, two, the belief that dieters should turn to God for success with weight loss being evidence of true faith. Some people call it Mm. pray away the pounds. Three, in some cases, the promotion of an idyllic ancient diet reminiscent of the Garden of Eden, aka the Maker's Diet and many other books. And four, like most secular diets, the view that being overweight is an individual character flaw related Mm -hmm. to a lack of self-control rather than a symptom of systemic factors, you know, like government subsidies for processed foods or policies that make communities completely unwalkable. No, it is your fault, the individual, because you can't control yourself. And Kristen, is there a particular Christian denomination that takes credit for these programs? Well, Christian diet programs tend to be associated with evangelical Christianity in the U.S., and are hugely popular with believers in prosperity gospel, but they have no particular Christian denomination attached to them. Right. And for those who need a little refresher, the prosperity gospel is something we talk about a fair amount on how to be fine. And back when we were doing by the book, the prosperity gospel preaches that God financially blesses his greatest believers. So in other words, if you're rich, it's because God chose you. And like you probably believe in him really hard and in a way he really appreciates. Yeah. And on the flip side, if you're not rich, we know what God thinks of you, right? You're failing in his eyes. Exactly. And one last thing I want to say about our conversation today, any joking or scrutinizing we do about Christian diets is not intended to be an attack on Christianity itself. Our scrutiny is about the Christian diet industry itself. Yes, yes. It's about how people have sort of co-opted Christianity in the name of like selling people diets. Exactly. Oh, and also now just seems like a good time to remind our listeners that we do list all of our sources in our episode description if you want to read more or get more information on today's topic. But let's get back to Christian diets. Now that we know what you're covering today and not covering, can we get back to this timeline you mentioned earlier? Because I want to hear more about Sylvester Graham and all the people that came after him. Yes, yes. So as I mentioned earlier, Pastor Graham folded a lot of diet talk into his theology. As he saw it, a surefire way to corrupt the body and soul was to put the wrong things into the body, namely processed foods, meat, and alcohol. And just as bad was putting food into the body with too many flavors, too many seasonings, or putting food in the body in large quantities. That's because Pastor Graham hated gluttony. In fact, He looked down on all forms of physical pleasure, including soft beds, warm baths, and sex, despite fathering 17 children, I should say. Hmm. And he believed his diet, including graham crackers, yes, 
graham crackers are his invention, would prevent people from having impure thoughts. And added bonus, they would stop people from masturbating. Right. Classic. That's what I was hoping we'd get to, right? Like, obviously, (laughs) dieting leads to not masturbating. Exactly. (laughs) But even though a lot of this sounds bananas 190 years later, back in the day, Graham was actually a respected thinker. He was a major influence on the New Thought movement, which preaches mind over matter. We know Mm. mind over matter. It's still here with us today, right? Right. Like, we hear that. Sometimes it uh, applies. Yes. And... Other innovators of the time were totally on board with Graham's preaching, including John and Will Kellogg, inventors of another food we know, cornflakes. Yeah. (laughs) Also, Graham's beliefs just happened to be very well-timed. According to cultural historian Sandra Gilman, from the 1860s, diet culture dominated the market. Diet books became bestsellers, and by the late 1800s, the bathroom scale, which I abhor, became a popular consumer item. But things really took off for the Christian diet movement about 100 years after Pastor Graham died in the years following World War II. That's when consumer culture, including diet culture, became what it is today. Ooh, interesting. Can you give me some highlights, please? Can you break it down for me? Yes. So let's start with Charlie Shedd, a Presbyterian minister who lost 100 pounds through prayer and medically supervised fasting. In 1957, he published Pray Your Way to Way to great acclaim. It is still considered one of the Christian diet classics. Marie Griffith wrote Help Lord, the Devil Wants Me Fat, which sold close to 100,000 copies between the fall of 1977 and 1978. And bonus, Jolenta, do you remember our very first Buy the Book live show? We featured this book as part of our show. Yes, we did. Yeah, I love this book. Free to be Thin by Marie Shapin and Neva Coyle was published in 1979. That sold 1.4 million copies worldwide. 1979 is also the year when one of my very favorite Christian book titles of all time came out, Slim for Him by Mm. Patricia B. Kremel. The him in this case is not Kremel's husband, but God. Gotcha. Him is the capital H him. Yes, yes. (laughs) I could easily name a million other titles, but instead, I'm going to jump ahead to the 1980s because, Jolenta, there's someone in the Christian diet movement I know you want me to get to. Um, Please tell me it's Gwen Shamblin because I'm always so fascinated by her. Uh, Yes, it is. Uh, Thank you. As you know, Jolenta, in 1986, Gwen Shamblin founded the Christian diet program, The Way Down Workshop, Way Down is W-E-I-G-H, Way Down. Yep, you want your weight down, which advised followers to pray their way to thinness and to transfer over their love of food to a love of God. So if you want to eat, every time you want to eat, just pray instead. Every time you think you love food, no, you don't. You love God. Right. Because God is better than food, right? And this was also sort of like a group that met up too, right? Yes. Like it was almost sort of Weight Watcher style, like you meet once a week and, and also discuss. Absolutely. That's exactly what it was. It was like a support group. Right. And within 10 years, the program was adopted by more than 1,000 churches in 49 states, as well as Great Britain and Canada. And in 1997, Shamblin turned her program into a book called The Way Down Diet. According to the New York Times, 
Doubleday paid more than $1 million to publish The Way Down Diet, which is an obscene amount of money. But rest assured, Doubleday made their money back because the book reportedly sold over 1 million copies. Wow. I'm very impressed. Yes. (laughs) So after the success of The Way Down Workshop and her book, Shamblin, as you know, Jolenta, decided it was time to be the founder of her own church, the Remnant Fellowship Church in Franklin, Tennessee. But despite her enormous success, Shamblin was eventually accused of preying on those who came to her hoping to lose weight in the HBO docuseries The Way Down. This time it's spelled W-A-Y, The Way Down, God, Greed, and the Cult of Gwen Shamblin. Survivors talk about how the insular Christian sect punished people for gaining weight, forced them to starve. They urged parents to beat their children into submission, in at least one case, beat their child to death, and enforced loyalty to the cause. It was a high-control group. Yeah. Just one story from the documentary that I found especially harrowing, and there are many stories. Mm -hmm. Laura Alvarez was told she needed to lose four pounds per week in order to be in God's goodwill. She was restricted to just 10 bites of food per day and was forced to fast every other month. When she finally sought medical treatment, doctors said she had already caused irreparable damage to her kidneys. Things could not get better. Oh, that's horrible. Oh, my gosh. And uh, definitely check out that docuseries if you want to learn more about individual stories, because it's pretty interesting. Yeah, it really, really is. But I want to note that it's not just confirmed Christian cult leaders like Gwen Shamblin who enter Mm. the diet industry with problematic ideology. It also happens with mainstream megachurch preachers like Rick Warren. Now, if you don't know who Rick Warren is, he's the founder of the Saddleback Church in California, which boasts a weekly attendance of 23,000-plus people. He's also actively campaigned against same-sex marriage. He openly opposes evolution. And he's been on the front lines of claiming Christian victimhood in America. And he's the author of, guess what, a diet book. In 2015, he wrote The Daniel Plan, which was an instant New York Times bestseller. So even the like less culty Christian diet books come with some baggage attached. Yeah, they absolutely do. But in all fairness... I would say that this is the case for pretty much every diet book author out there, including the secular ones. The problem for me is that when authors decide to mix religion with weight loss, especially authors of great authority like Rick Warren, the failure to lose weight and keep it off becomes not just a matter of personal shame or social stigma, but it also becomes a matter of sin and spiritual crisis. There's so much more weight. It's not like you're failing yourself. It's like you're failing to win the favor of like your Lord and Savior. That's that's yes. much heavier. Yeah, yeah. And to be clear, Christian dieters, like all dieters, will gain the weight back. Study after study shows that 95% of dieters fail to reach their weight loss goals or fail to keep the weight off. This is backed up by the Institute for the Psychology of Eating, as well as Mm. hundreds of studies conducted by research universities, scholars, and registered dietitians. We know this. And when those 95% of Christian dieters gain the weight back, what is the message that they're internalizing? That they failed God? That they didn't pray hard enough? That they're just too sinful to be thin? Right. Yeah, they're like not righteous enough. Yeah. And there are also ramifications beyond the individual. 
since we're talking about religion here. Right. For example, I can't help but wonder, are followers of these books internalizing the message that thinner people are more godly than fatter people? And if Mm. so, how does that visual cue of spiritual hierarchy affect other members of their faith and people outside the faith? How does it play into who they back up politically and who they choose to ostracize, who gets celebrated in these communities, and who gets punished? Wow, that's that's heavy. How big is the Christian diet industry? Well, not surprisingly, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. I should have guessed that. <laughs> yeah, and, and we're not just talking books, by the way. There are hundreds of Christian diet programs, dietary supplements, and classes I didn't even mention today, including just a short list, Prayer mm-hmm. Walk, which combines gentle physical exercise with praying, Praise Aerobics VHS tapes with Sherry Chambers. Nice. Those sold over 50,000 copies in the 90s. First Place for Health, which was a Bible study group about weight loss and body and soul aerobics. These were classes that were held in person in churches and weren't just about worshiping through dance and losing weight through dance, but they were also a means of recruiting new congregants. I could go on and on and on. The list is like, there are so many examples I could give. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. And I have to point out that you, Kristen, pitched this topic. So I'm curious, is that because you grew up going to church? Is that because... You used to be an ardent dieter. Why? Well, I'm going to confess something. I did, when I was a kid, pray more than once to God to make my body be shaped differently Mm. than it was. And, oh, God, it just breaks my heart to say that when I think back on little me. Yeah. But that's not why I wanted to talk about this topic today. My real interest in Christian diets— started in young adulthood when I was working for NYU's Center for Religion and Media, which I've mentioned on the show before. Right. One of the visiting scholars introduced me to the world of Christian diets back then, and I've been fascinated ever since, not just for all the reasons I've mentioned so far in this episode, but also because Christian diets play into and perpetuate a certain idealized version Mm. of Christian womanhood, which I find so fascinating and problematic. This version of Christian womanhood you know, is all about personal sacrifice. It's about having a pleasing presence. It's about not taking up too much space. And I find the intersections of that identity and of religion and weight all at once to be just speaking to something bigger in our world about how we think about womanhood beyond religion. Right, right. And also, in a weird way, how we think about weight as something that's almost ethereal or mystical or can be, you know, willed. It's such an interesting way to look at it. Yeah, absolutely. And so I hope that all the listeners today, whether or not you are Christian, whether or not you've ever been on a diet, I hope that you got something out of today's hot topic because I think that there are a lot of different ways this conversation is relevant to our culture. Oh, totally. And share your stories with us. If you have any thoughts you want to add, you can email us at kristinangelenta at gmail.com. Or you can hit us up on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Kristen and Jolenta. Coming up, we hear from a letter writer who's struggling with jealousy. Stay with us. Hey, everyone. We're back with our first letter of the day. Jolenta, what do they have to say? Our letter writer says, 
Dear Kristen and Jalenta, I'm jealous when my boyfriend spends one-on-one time with his badass female coworker. I know my jealous feelings aren't based in reality, though. He spends time one-on-one with many different coworkers, both male and female, because he's leading an after-work engineering project that I'm also involved with. I've met this girl, and I really like her. I want to be supportive of what she does and be her friend, too. But how do I stop comparing myself with her? She trumps me at work, athletically, has a strong personality, etc., Why can't I get over these overpowering feelings of jealousy and be happy and supportive for everyone, including my boyfriend? Why can't I be happy with myself just the way I am? Instead, I've had days where I feel so jealous that I can't concentrate at work and I'm screaming on the inside. Please help me out with this jealousy monster. Oh, letter writer, I am so sorry you're feeling that green monster. Mm. That is a terrible feeling. I hate feeling jealous. I know some people revel in it or they feel like, oh, I want a jealous boyfriend. No, jealousy sucks. It's not fun Mm -mm. for anybody. It's not fun for the person experiencing it, the person who has to deal with someone experiencing it. I'm so sorry. I hate hate it so much. Yeah, I hate it. the worst. Yeah, so... First of all, you're not alone. I think a lot of us have felt that kind of jealousy where we're just mad at ourselves. Like, why can't I stop feeling this way? I think it's a pretty common thing. But we have some advice that we hope will help you move through this, move forward, and then get to the other side of it. Jolenta, do you want to start or do you want me to start? Well, sure, I'll start. I would say, first of all, I would try getting to know your monster. Get to know that little green monster. What is it in you that is driving you to compare yourself to her? You know, did a caregiver compare you a lot to others? Did an ex? If you're in therapy, I super recommend exploring the topic because I know personally when I am jealous, it's because the person I'm jealous of is either in a totally lucky life situation that is way beyond me and I have no control over Or they remind me of shit I'm insecure about in myself. You know, if I'm feeling like I really miss sports and I wish I could pick up like a ball or a tennis racket or something again. And then I find myself being jealous of someone who's really athletic. I have to be like, oh, right. I bet it's because deep down I like miss playing sports. You know, it's that kind of Mm -hmm. thing. Jolenta, I think that is such great advice. I 100% am on board with that you know, see what's at the heart of it. You know, there there can be a lot of things that are at the heart of jealousy. Sometimes the jealousy is, as you said, Jolenta, a signal that, you know what, I really like sports and I haven't been letting myself play sports. Why don't I let myself play some sports? Why don't I join a kickball league or a pickleball league or whatever's hip these days? You know, do that thing that feels good. So sometimes it's sending a message to us of things we want to do. I also would just want to gently remind you of something that I'm sure that you consciously know, but just need to absorb a little bit more, which is that even people who look like they got it all going on, they don't. So please don't compare your insides to other people's outsides. We all have our baggage. We all have our insecurities. There's nothing that makes this other person better than you, more perfect than you, more personable than you. She just has a different personality than you. That doesn't mean she's Mm -hmm. better than you in any way. And Please just remember that. We all may present one way on the outside, but 
maybe feel differently on the inside. And maybe just because you think her personality is the best personality in the room doesn't mean everybody feels that way, you know? That might just be tapping into something that you're thinking is the case. And maybe underneath that personality she presents are a lot of things that you feel about yourself too. So maybe just keep that in mind. Just anytime things are getting too upsetting, you know, just take a pause for a second. I'd also say that sometimes when I have been feeling jealous or jilted and, you know, you're not, by the way, being jilted by your boyfriend every time he's meeting with her. She is just somebody he has to meet with along with everybody else on his team, as you said. But maybe if you are feeling jealous or jilted, maybe that is also a really good time to reach out to other people. And for me, that can give me a real endorphin boost when I'm like, oh, I'm feeling jilted. This one friend never returns my phone calls or texts or whatnot. It's like, well, why don't I reach out to another friend and see how they're doing? You know, there are so many other people that I could reach out to or a place I could volunteer with, or I could just walk down to my community fridge and drop off a couple of items, you know, donate those. And that will make me feel less alone, more connected. And it also will remind me like, hey, I'm a good person too. I'm that kind of person who reaches out to people. I'm that kind of person who donates to my community. And that can give me a little mood boost in that moment to counter that feeling of being jilted or jealous or whatnot. So just a tiny little, you know, act like sending a text to somebody you haven't talked to in a while might make you feel better. Yes, I love that. Keeping yourself occupied with something you know like boosts you. On the flip side, I would advise you not to internet stalk the person. I know from personal experience, it never goes well. Never. never. It never goes well because (laughs) you can make up any story you want about this person and you're going to make up a story that's better than their actual life or, you know, more grandiose than what's actually going on. And you're going to make it up partially because everything people put online is their best representation of themselves. It's the image they want out there. Like Kristen said, you can't compare your insides to someone else's outsides. And their internet presence is part of their outsides. And I know when I've looked up like people's new partners or like exes and it just it never goes well you never find out like oh good like they miss me and are failing at life like and even when you do find out something went wrong in their life it doesn't ever feel good also like you said in your letter you wanted to get to know this coworker. go for it It can be annoying and frustrating to sort of push yourself to like get to know someone you think is perfect, but it always ends up usually helping sort of like take them off that pedestal you have in your mind. And I'm not saying like become friends with her to like look for flaws or like talk shit about her behind her back. But I'm just saying like once you see her as more of a whole person and not this sort of collection of achievements and character traits, it's easier to just not see her as perfect or this sort Mm -hmm. of unattainable goal. I had this happen once in acting school. There was a girl in my class who was like stunningly gorgeous. She still is, not was. Like supermodel, off the charts gorgeous. And I was like, I can't talk to her. She's going to be too perfect. She's also Australian, so she has a really cool accent. (laughs) Like, what's the point? 
And then once I got to know her, she was the sweetest, goofiest, sort of like biggest kid you could ever get to know. And like the most lovable, like goofball. And I'm not saying like getting to know she was goofy, like made it so I could tolerate how pretty she was, but it just made her a whole person to me. And it, I was no longer sort of fixated on like, oh, I could never look like that. And I was more focused on like, this person's a blast. Mm-hmm. I think all of this is true. And then just one last thing I want to add to all of this. Jolenta already suggested talking about this perhaps with a therapist. If you don't already have a therapist, maybe seek one out or maybe start reading some books or getting support in other ways where you can just get that mental health assistance. We all need help sometimes. And jealousy can just feel overwhelming. It can feel like a monster. So don't be afraid to ask for help. Get that help if you want it. And it's out there for you. All right. We are going to take a quick break, but could you rate us and review us wherever you're listening, you know, in whatever app you happen to be hearing us through right now? You can hit five stars, write a little ditty about the show. It helps people find the show and it helps us know what you're liking about the show. So go on and give us a little review. Coming up, a listener has a question about therapy. Stay with us. We are back with our second letter of the day. Kristen, would you read it, please? Yes. Our second letter writer says, Dear Kristen and Joe Lenta, I have a question regarding therapy. I do phone appointments and I'm on my second therapist. I quit my last one because she was obviously distracted while we were on the phone. Now the second one also seems to be distracted. What am I to do? Many therapists are only doing Zoom or phone appointments nowadays. I prefer in person and I dislike being on video, so I don't really want to do that, but maybe I have to. Oh, letter writer, therapy, therapy, therapy. We love it, <laughs> but it can be such a pain to get it right. Yes, you know? yes, yes. It's so precarious finding the right place, the right person, the right timing, everything. First of all, kudos for going to therapy and sticking with it. Clearly, you're on like a second one. And therapists that are distracted are the worst. I've heard so many horror stories about therapists, uh, especially now that most are working over Zoom, that like you can tell they're watching TV, like oh, you can see God. the sort of like flickering light. I'm like, oh, the monitor next to where I am is a TV screen, isn't it? Oh. And like therapists that people like are like, I'm pretty sure they're just reading, not like writing anything down. Like, I feel like they're reading a book and stuff like that. All sorts of stuff. It's so much easier to be distracted with all the stuff that's at your home even when you're a therapist. So that sucks. And I feel you. The TV example is from me. I've heard oh. of other people with the reading and stuff, but I'm pretty sure one therapist I had not too long ago was like watching TV while, while, oh, God. while she worked with me. And I'm like, I thought light's sure changing a lot to just be a light. <laughs> oh my God. That's so maddening. Even if it's on mute, like it just, I don't know. Maybe oh. it works for her, but it didn't work for me. It's not necessarily why I stopped going, but it was part of it. Yeah. Oh, that's so disrespectful and such a waste right. of your time. It Ugh. sucks. It sucks. But I do have to say 
the more you try, the greater chance you'll get a good fit. I know it's a pain in the ass. And like, I'm hoping you have insurance that covers this because shopping around is annoying, especially when it involves appointments and co-pays or just, you know, high fees in general. But truly, it's just a matter of searching. It's like a job search, you know, they don't happen overnight. Every once in a while, you'll hear of a miracle story of someone like clicking on their first try. But usually it takes a while. Sometimes job hunts take months or even, you know, a year. It takes a while to find the right person to like help you with your innermost shit. And most therapists are doing Zoom. But I have to say some of like my best therapy work has been done over Zoom lately. So I feel like even if you don't love it, if that's all they're offering, some of them are still really competent. They still use the screen to look at your body language and try to pick up on those unconscious cues along with what you're saying, they can still do it. I managed to find a personal therapist that is brilliant. And like, I don't even know how she sees half the shit she sees, where she'll be like, what was that? Like, you just rolled your eyes. And I'll be like, what? (laughs) And she's great. And she does only offer virtual now. A lot of therapists, at least in New York, gave up their office space because it's really expensive to maintain. And they liked how it was working from home and didn't change back. So that's, I think, why so many of them only do Zoom now, because like their home office that's attached to their kitchen only works through Zoom, not when like physical people are coming in. Yeah. So even though it's annoying, that is why. And there are people doing it more in person. If you look at the Psychology Today listings, a lot of people will say if they're doing it online or in person, and you can try to search for that in your criteria if you would prefer in person. So don't give up is my main advice, because even under these newer circumstances, there are people who will click with you and who are sort of observant enough to pick up on lots of things, even through the screen. Yeah. I think that's all great advice, Jolenta. I would also just add that I think that as you're searching for your next therapist, that it would be useful for you to relay these experiences to whoever you're meeting with. To say, the reason I'm searching for a new therapist is I felt I wasn't being heard by my past two therapists. They seemed very distracted. I don't know what they were doing. I wanted to give them the benefit of the doubt that they were taking notes or something, but it's clear it wasn't that. I would like to know that whoever I have as my therapist next will tell me if they're taking notes. If it sounds like suddenly they're doing a Google search, if they just say out loud, hey, just so you know, that's the sound of me typing my notes up right now as I talk to you. Or if they say clearly, I'm not distracted, but at this moment, I'm taking a book down from the shelf so that... I can look up this thing that relates to what you're talking about. You know, whatever it is, if you can make clear what you need from a therapist and what your past therapists were not providing you. I know that can feel very vulnerable. It can be tough to tell a therapist what you need or want from them. I have in the past been cowardly and just stopped seeing therapists rather than tell them what I needed because I was being stubborn. I just thought, if I have to tell you what I need from you, then I don't trust you in the first place and you know, one of my friends had to take me aside and say, 
sometimes you need to actually tell your practitioner how to do their fucking job, which I hated the idea of. And I'm saying that there's degrees to that, too. It's like, if they're just being outright disrespectful, you don't have to explain to them what they're doing wrong. You can just leave and go somewhere else. But when you're getting a new therapist, as my friend was saying, sometimes you need to tell them what you need from them. So that might be something worth considering as well. Tell them what wasn't working with your past therapist. Yeah. And oftentimes, the first session with a therapist, the first question out of their mouth will be like, why are you here today? And that can be the first answer you give them. It doesn't just have to be like depression. It can be like, because my last therapist was doing something else the whole time. Was watching Netflix the whole time. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Or whatever the case is. Yes. So we wish you the best of luck here. This is really frustrating. We all hope that therapists would be above acting like this during their work. But sadly, it seems like across professions, there are people who are distracted no matter what they do, sadly. Right. And that's it for this episode of How to Be Fine. Huge thank you to our great production team over at Stitcher, our executive producer, Nora Ritchie, our producer, Chantal Holder, and our composer slash engineer, Casey Holford. Reminder, you can always weigh in on the conversation and see what we're up to on Instagram at howtobefinepod. And a huge shout out to all of you who've been supporting us on Patreon, where we talk about books in our bonus episodes every week. If you want to find out more or listen to those bonus episodes, you can hear us at patreon.com slash listen to buy the book. That's patreon.com slash listen to buy the book, where Jolenta and I talk about what we're reading each week. Until next time, I'm Jolenta Greenberg. And I'm Kristen Meinzer. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Until next week, stay fine. Stitcher.